If you uh, are visiting with us, uh, normally on, uh, on Sunday mornings, I am preaching through whole books of the Bible. Uh, but we're in a, a unique uh, time in the life of our church, uh, as we've been a church plant for uh, seven years. Uh, and uh, we are moving to a time where we have uh, nominated and will be electing our own local leadership, our own officers, elders and deacons. That'll take place early in January. Um, And so what we're doing now is we're taking some time to look specifically at what the scriptures teach us about church government, about the authority that Christ has placed in the context of his of his people. Um, We uh, we first looked and saw that Jesus is the one head and king of his church and that he administers his authority delegates that authority to officers in the churches. We saw the week after that that there are two offices that exercise that authority, the office of elder and deacon, and we looked at the the roles that those two offices uh, uh, carry out in the context of the church. This week, what we want to look at is to see um, who is qualified. What are the qualifications to serve in or to fill those Uh, those offices. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, because it's important for us as a congregation as we move forward to make sure that we're on the same page of understanding what the scriptures teach us. That page should be the Bible. If Jesus uh, is the one who's governing this church, we need to follow his uh, intentions, his purposes, and his design. And so we want to make sure as we are moving forward to uh, elect officers that we are making sure our uh, our selection and election is conformed to Scripture and the qualifications that Jesus lays out there. Uh, so this morning we are gonna uh, we're gonna start in First Timothy. Last week we were in a lot of books of the Bible. This week we're only gonna be in two. Uh, so if your paper cuts from last week can heal a little bit on your fingers. We're gonna start in First Timothy chapter two. We're also gonna look in uh, in Titus chapter one. We'll start in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, just so that we kind of have an idea of why we would look at these two, two books. So Paul, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, uh, has, uh, is writing to Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus are, are planting churches and revitalizing churches to make sure that the, the leadership that is there is established according to Christ's command, and those that have strayed and erred are being reoriented and reorganized according to Christ's command. And so uh, in both uh, books, it outlines these qualifications for officers in the church. And so that's why we want to look there this morning as we seek to do that as a congregation in a month or so. So if you would, uh, let's begin in chapter 2 of uh, of 1 Timothy, starting in verse 8. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, that's on page 991. So... Follow along with me in your copy there of God's Word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn uh, quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They should hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you flip over a couple of uh, chapters or books to Titus, this is on page 998, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Jesus, our chief elder and shepherd, we pray that you would uh, care for us, your sheep, this morning. We pray that you would use uh, your word uh, to instruct us, to shape and change us, that our, our hearts and our lives and our church uh, would be organized and oriented to your purposes and your desires for us, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the, the, the first thing to, to understand is uh, our, our view of the scriptures. That we understand the Bible to be God's word. It's inerrant, meaning uh, that there are no errors in it. But also it's in, in, infallible. That as we follow God's word, it's not going to lead us astray. It's not going to lead us in a, in a wrong direction. Uh, God's intentions are what are good for his people. And therefore we need to seek to orient our lives in conformity with how he's revealed himself. Uh, uh, sometimes we do that well, sometimes we don't. Uh, these, 
passages that we're going to look at this morning, especially this, the beginning section of, chapter, uh, of this passage that we read this morning from chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, uh, has uh, been a, a passage that has been uh, misused many times in the context of God's, uh, God's church. In some ways, it's been used to, uh, to devalue women, uh, to hurt and to harm them. Uh, in other places, it's, uh, it's been uh, just completely ignored uh, and, uh, and, and explained away and not used in the, uh, the context of, uh, of God's church. Uh, there's been other places, though, where it's been used and applied rightly. And that's what we want to do this morning. What does it look like for churches to be oriented and organized according to the instruction of Christ to his church? What does that look like? What does it mean? Who is qualified to serve as officers in the office of elder and deacon in Christ's church? The first thing that we we see in this passage is that not everyone is qualified to serve as an elder and a deacon in the the church. Look in verse 8, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, something to, to remember, Timothy is writing to these churches in Ephesus. Uh, some had already been established, some are being established, but directly what he's uh, addressing here are some churches that had been established, but there was unqualified leadership in these positions of, uh, of church authority in the context of the church both unqualified men and unqualified women. Here we see that him, him addressing first, as Paul is writing to Timothy, about the, the unqualified men who were misusing the authority that God had given to these offices. That they are doing these, they're, they're, they're praying, they're exercising this authority, they're lifting their holy hands in prayer, but they're doing so with anger and quarreling. A misuse of uh, the the office that God has given them, a misuse of the authority that God has instructed to them. We'll, we'll look at, in a, in a little bit, the, the, the proper qualifications for someone who should use, uh, uh, who would occupy this office in, uh, in chapter 3 in a little bit. But, but first, just notice that in this context, uh, Paul is saying there are, are men who aren't qualified to serve in this position. And here he's pointing out those that particularly are those who are exercising this, uh, this role with anger, with quarreling, with bickering. But notice as he, as he goes on, he's not just addressing the men. He's also talking to the women in the context of this church in Ephesus. In verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Now here, uh, Paul first addressing the, the character of, uh, of the women who are, who are living in the context of this church. We saw some of the same things communicated to us in First Peter, of what is beautiful to our God is not determined and, uh, and figured out by what the culture says is beautiful, but it's one that's oriented and flows out of the heart, out of a character that loves Jesus, that follows him, and exhibits the righteousness of the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. So first, Paul is, uh, is directing and pointing both the men in their character and the women to live in a way that is consistent with their, their calling. 
But notice how he goes on to, to also talk about uh, women who are unqualified in this context. Look in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, here, remember what we, we saw last week when we looked at the role of elder in the context of the church. How was it that an elder exercised their authority? One of the chief ways was through this authoritative teaching, shepherding, and discipling of God's people. That is reserved specifically for elders in the context of the church. Here, Paul is saying that that is some, a role that is reserved particularly for men. Now, we, we need to remember and see in this context, and we'll see this, this next week, here as Paul is talking, let a woman learn with quietly and with all submissiveness. And then at the, after that, he's, he's explaining what that means, of they're not to teach, they're not to exercise this authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Uh, here he's talking about what does it look like to submit to that properly functioning authority in the context of the church. Next week, or two weeks from now, when we look at the responsibilities and the roles of the congregation, we'll see that it's not just women who are called to submit to the proper leadership of the church, but all the members of the church are called to submit to that leadership. So this calling, although it's being specifically applied to women here, it is going to be applied to all of the people of God next week when we look at other passages uh, that, uh, that talk about submission to these proper uh, God-placed leaders in the context of, uh, of the church. Uh, also notice um, that this, this call to quietness is talking about the attitude in which one is learning and submitting to the authority uh, of the, the elders in this context. It's not uh, a forbidding of any sort of, uh, of speaking of women at all. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, we see uh, the place of women to, to, to pray, the, of women to, to sing, uh, of women to encourage uh, other people, just as uh, other, uh, other men are called to do that, that too. Um, but here, what we're, we're seeing specifically is Paul is talking about who is qualified to exercise this role of authoritative teaching and oversight of the church. And he says that it's reserved for men, but particular men. Remember, we've already seen not every man is qualified. And women aren't called here to submit to every man in the context of the church. Who are they called to submit to? To elders. Those who have been placed in this authority. Every man doesn't have authority in the context of the church, and every woman doesn't have con authority in the context of the church, Paul is saying here. But uh, why, why would he say that? Why would Paul say that women can't teach or have authority in this way in the context of the church? Is he a jerk? Is, is Paul a male chauvinist who looks down and devalues women? Is there something deficient in, in, in women? Their mental capacities? Their abilities to teach? Their godliness in general? Some people think that. Some people think that, that Paul is in error here 
and he needs to be corrected, and that we've come to a different uh, view now. But notice Paul roots it nowhere in any of those things. Look at what he says as he goes forward. In verse 13, he explains why this uh, qualification is, uh, is placed here. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What Paul is doing is he's rooting this qualification of, of the office of elder being reserved for a man in creation. In God's original created purposes, that a man is to shepherd and care for his wife, giving of himself, sacrificing for her, serving her, that she and all under his care would flourish and thrive and develop under God's good care and intention. That was God's original design and creation uh, from Genesis 1. And that's what Paul roots it back in. It's not something that is, uh, is, is cultural. It's not something that says anything about women's abilities or men's abilities or superiority. It's rooted in God's design and creation from the foundations of the creation of humanity. Um, Paul is speaking about it positively. And, and also, if we look back and think about uh, the other places, uh, especially in the, in the New Testament, we'll just look there, when these offices and the, the leadership is being put in place. Think back, how did, how did Jesus, when he selected the 12 apostles, who did he select? He selected 12 men. Uh, when uh, the, the 12 selected the seven, the, those who were laying the groundwork for deacons to come later, who did they select? They selected seven men. Now, is Jesus a chauvinist? Does Jesus devalue women? Or is there something going on about the way that God has structured his world and his intentions and his purposes, that, that men and women have different roles, different roles in the context of marriage, which we can look at at another time, but particularly here drawing our focus to the different roles that men and women have in the context of the church. It's important for us to understand that having a different role does not communicate or mean that you have different value. Men and women are both created in the image of God. Men and women both have equal value and worth and dignity and honor because men and women together and collectively reflect and image our creator. But in the context here, there's different roles. Men have not all men, but specific men have the, the calling to lead in the context of the church, Paul is talking about here. But notice, he, he points to these, uh, uh, the role of, uh, of, of women in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, here Paul is speaking to a, a unique role that only women have. Men can't do this. But specifically, if we take it back and, and orient it in the context of creation, as Paul is talking about here, because he's talking about the context of the fall, when he says, for Adam was uh, formed first, then Eve, and then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul's pointing back 
to this great honor that God bestows upon Eve and her descendants of bearing the promised one who would come to bring redemption and restoration to all things. That great privilege and that great honor to bear the Son of God was given and extended to a woman. What an honor. That in this place, if we want to begin to think, does God value women? Do different roles have different value? No, God says. Both are important and both are valued. But also what we see here is, not just as Paul is rooting it in creation, but he also points us to the problems that come about when this, this design of God is not followed. Notice what he says. It's not just because Adam was formed first and then Eve, but look in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, uh, it's important to understand, Paul is not uh, demeaning Eve here. He's just using the same language Eve uses to describe herself and what happened. She says, I was deceived by the serpent. But remember the context and what God's intention was. Who was to be the shepherd and the leader and the protector and the guarder? It was to be Adam. But what was Satan's design? Satan's design was to, uh, to go around that, to undermine that, to to disorganize God's purpose. And he comes to Eve. And Eve, instead of responding properly and, and understanding what did God instruct and pass on to humanity through Adam, she began to go her own way. But at the same time, what was Adam doing? He was there. Moses is clear in Genesis. Did Adam step forward? Did Adam exercise his authority to protect and guard his wife? to protect and guard the honor and glory of his God? No. In fact, Adam stood aside, and when responsibility came up, what did he do? He blamed God and he blamed Eve. Adam is the devaluer of women. Adam is the one who, who uh, values himself at the expense of women. God and his design and his intention is to have one who gives himself for the sake of another who through their care thrives. And notice, Paul is pointing that here because that's what's going on in the context of the church in Ephesus. Both men and women are uh, ignoring God's intentions for leadership in the context of the church. And just as it went bad for Adam and Eve and humanity when that happened originally in the garden, Paul is saying, look, if you want to look and see what the problems are going on in, in Ephesus, it's because these same things are being ignored. Not everyone is qualified to serve as an elder, as a deacon in the context of Christ's church. And when you stray from God's intentions and purposes, when you stray from God's instructions, it does not go well for his people. Do you trust God's goodness? Do you trust that he loves you? Do you trust that not just him giving his son to sacrifice and die and redeem you, but giving his word to instruct and guide the church is in your best interest, men and women? Is the Bible good for women? I would say the scriptures say yes, but we do have to acknowledge 
that the church many times has used this to hurt and harm women, to put them down, to devalue and not acknowledge their gifts and their contribution in the context of the church. But does that not mean that we should cast this out and not use it rightly? No. Us as a church, we understand this to be the teaching from our Savior. Jesus speaking through Paul, pointing us back to his design and his intention for the church. So that means that if we follow this rightly and appropriately, women should be built up in the context of our church. They should be valued, they should flourish, they should thrive. So should men in the same context in this. Because remember, what did we see last week? What are elders and deacons to do? They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Just man saints? No, all of the saints. What does that look like in the context of our church? Because this is how we understand the church is to be organized. We disciple our men and our women in the exact same way. The same content, the same understanding of their, their, their calling in the world to engage and pursue other believers, to encourage them, to build them up, to make disciples, training both in evangelism and sound doctrine and theology so that you would recognize what is uh, false teaching, so that you would recognize what is right teaching and live in that way. Are women gift and quali- gifted and qualified to teach? Yes, they are. In a particular way, in a particular context in the church, yes. And guess what that looks like in the context of our church? From our beginnings, we have had more women teaching in our church than we have men. From our beginning, listen, Susan has been teaching, Carol has been teaching, Lindsay Cornea has been teaching, Jan has been teaching, Lindsay Schubert has been teaching, Krista, Allie, Mary, Stacy, Carolyn, Christy, Olga, Sandy, all who've been equipped and trained and who are exercising and using their gifts in a valuable and significant and an important way to pour into the children of our church, to pour into the youth of our church, and to pour into the women of our church. And if you were to ask them, they would say, some of them, oh, we have plenty of opportunities to exercise our gifts here. Hopefully, that as we're beginning to see that, that women not, util- not being uh, in the place of an elder or a deacon doesn't mean they don't have value. Doesn't mean that they don't have gifts that can be used in the context of Christ's church. They have valuable gifts. And our church is where it is today because of the significant sacrifice and sound teaching that these women have done in appropriate context, in the context of the church. But uh, also what we'll, we'll see as we move forward, just as women have particular roles and context to serve in the context of our church, men do as well. Uh, there are certain things as we move forward, you will only see our elders and deacons doing. Because the role of leadership in the context of Christ's church isn't for all men in general. It is for the elders and the deacons in particular. And so there is going to be many ways that men who aren't in the position of 
of, of an elder or a deacon in our church won't serve in those particular ways. Are there other ways that they can exercise and utilize their gifts? Yes. But remember, differing roles doesn't show differing value. And what we're saying is not that authority is uh, reserved for men in general in the context of the church, but it's the elders and the deacons in particular. It's a particular kind of man that is qualified to serve in the context of the church in this way. That's what we want to look at next. Look, if not everybody is qualified to serve as an elder and deacon, then who is? Well, a particular kind of man. We're going to look at these qualifications. We're not going to go in depth with all of them, but I want us to, to look at, at some general categories. We're going to look at them in this way. We're going to see that, that, that uh, the man who's qualified to serve as an elder or deacon should be one who's char- qualified in his character, one who's qualified in his home, one who's qualified in his outside reputation, and one who is qualified in his faith. Look at, look at qualified in his character. Uh, look at what, uh, what Paul says as he goes on, this office of overseer. And again, remember, we've already seen that's used interchangeably with the office of uh, uh, the terminology for elder. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, gentle, hospitable. Well, as he continues to go on, he says that he's not a drunkard. He's not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Here, Paul is focusing in on the character of these particular men, of the way that they're to live their lives, not in anger, not in cruelty to other people, not addicted to wine or other substances. Titus uh, refers to the same things in verse 7, where he also points that they're not to be arrogant or quick-tempered. Again, uh, moving us away from one who would be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Uh, But the same thing comes across as Paul talks about deacons. Look at the qualifications down in verse 8. He says that they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, And then in verse 10, notice what, what he says. Let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Paul is saying that the character of the men who serve in this office matters. They're not to be those who exercise it in praying with, uh, with quarrelsome hearts and with anger, with uh, living in a way that, that contradicts the profession that they're making and the teaching that they're doing. They are to have a character that reflects the values and the heart and the lives of Jesus, the chief shepherd that they represent, so that those under their care flourish and thrive. Now, how, how are we going to figure this out? Well, as a, as a church, we are, uh, have been observing the people who are in the context of our church for several years. Uh, uh, no one was uh, open for, uh, for nomination in the context of our church uh, and a- able to move forward in the training process who hadn't been here for a few years so that we would be able to observe their character in the context of our church and and outside. Who are they? We're going to do a background check, criminal background check on people, but also as we've had the opportunity to see their lives consistently lived out. These men are going to be examined and tested, questioned about their lives 
about their character, about the way they interact with their families and other people. Uh, because that actually leads us to the, the next thing, that they're to be qualified in their home. Look at what it, it says in verse 2 of chapter 3 of Timothy. There be, uh, um, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, it says, that actually comes up several times, both in, in the, the information about a deacon as well, uh, and also over in what, uh, what Titus says about uh, these, uh, these men. As it's talking about the husband of one wife, this isn't just saying, hey, this is to be somebody who, who doesn't have affairs or who doesn't have inappropriate relationships with other women. No, remember, we're putting this in the whole context. How, what does Jesus say a marriage looks like? What does it look like to actually be the husband of one wife? It's not domination. It's service. It's sacrifice. It's giving yourself so that the, the woman under your care thrives and flourishes. Do you see a flourishing, joyful woman who is the, the wife of this husband? Do you see him caring for her in that way that reflects Christ? Because notice, uh, we're also to look at the wives of these, of these men. Look at what it says in verse, uh, verse 11. As it's explaining deacons, Paul takes a little side note and draws our attention to their wives. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. What does this, this man's house look like? What do those under his shepherding care look like? Are they thriving? Are they pursuing Christ? Are they growing under his care? Because Paul says that's important. Notice what he says in verses 4 or 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Why? For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Titus says something similar, that he says that the, the children of these, uh, of these men must be believers. They must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Why? Well, you, you're God's children. You, members of the church, you're a part of his household. You know who God wants caring for you? One who cares for his own household well. One who loves and gives himself for his children. If he's not able to disciple and care for his children well, why do you think he would be able to do that with you? His children aren't following, hoping, and resting in Jesus. Why do you think that he would be qualified to equip you, a larger group of people, to be doing the, the ministry and the calling that Jesus has called him to? No, 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 Paul says we must look not just at somebody who attends regularly at church, Someone who's a successful businessman who's proven himself out in the, in the world? No. Let's look at the little flock under his care. Is he serving them? Is he guiding them? Is he pointing them to Christ? How will we determine this? Well, we're going to interview the wives of these men. We're going to find out from them, how does your husband conduct himself behind closed doors? We're going to talk to their children. Is your dad reflect Jesus? Is he cruel? Does he hurt you? Or does he reflect your heavenly father? Why? We want to know. Because we want qualified men 
in this role in our church. But also notice, Paul says that these men who would be qualified are those who are qualified in their outside reputation. Look in verse 7. Moreover, he must be thought well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, which is a snare of the devil. Remember, what are we as the church? We are his ambassadors, all of us collectively. We are his priests, those who are, are to take his blessing and true knowledge of him to the world. If the leaders of the church aren't able to do that, how well do you think the rest of the congregation will be able to do that? Paul is saying... They must have a good reputation among outsiders because the the honor and glory of Christ is at stake. If these men are cruel at work, if they cheat in their business dealings, uh, if they they badmouth their superiors or mistreat and are cruel to those who are underneath them, we don't want them leading in the context of Christ's church because they're going to hurt and harm his sheep And they're going to misrepresent Jesus in the world. How are we going to determine this? We've already sent out references. For every man who is moving forward and being examined and tested right now, they've had to hand out reference forms to both to people who are over them in authority and those who are under them. Because we want to get a good idea. How do these men conduct themselves outside of Christ's church? Do they look one way here on Sunday and another way during the week? We need to make sure we know that because these qualifications Christ has given us. Lastly, what we want to look at is are they qualified in their faith? Look in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Or as it goes down to talk to uh, about um, uh, in uh, verse, uh, actually up in verse 2. It says that they must be able to teach, or as it communicates and talks about deacons later on. It says uh, that uh, they must, uh, in verse 9, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Or in the language that Titus uses over in uh, chapter 1 of Titus, he says that in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, These men need to be believers first. You know that there are people serving in the position of pastor and elder and deacon in churches that don't know Jesus, that deny the authority of his word, that deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Here, Paul is saying, you must look at the faith of these men. Not only must they not be recent converts, but they must know what is sound teaching. They must know what is errant and wrong. Why? They need to protect the sheep. They need to guard and protect Christ's flock so that they aren't led astray, so that they aren't harmed, so that they aren't hurt. We're going to test and examine these men in their testimony, in their profession of faith in Christ, but also do they hold the sound teaching? Is there a view of what the scriptures teach consistent with our understanding as a church and as a denomination what, it, uh, what the scriptures teach? They're going to be examined in, the, in their knowledge of the Bible, in their, their knowledge and understanding of, uh, of our statement of faith, and then how to apply that to the context of Christ's church. They're going to be examined written, 
which I've already gotten those tests back and we're examining them. But then they're going to go before our elders and they're going to be examined orally to make sure that they are those who hold the mystery of the faith with a, with a, 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 sound, with a good conscience and who can stand firm in the trustworthy word as taught from the scriptures. Why? Because Christ deserves that. You as his sheep need that. So as we begin to think forward and you look to uh, uh, elections of these, uh, of these men in January, look and see who has Christ placed in the context of our church who fulfills these qualifications. Our election is, and the, the, when the vote comes forward, it's our way of discerning who has the Holy Spirit placed in the context of our church who is to serve and shepherd and serve Christ's sheep. Remember, not everyone is qualified to serve in these roles, but there are particular men who are. We will be guided by God's word, prayerfully putting forward only those who are qualified in conformity with Christ who rules over his church to see who he would have lead and shepherd our congregation. Because remember, Jesus loves you. He's died for you. And we want to make sure that our suffering and dying shepherd, that his lambs are cared for as he intended and as he designed. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you rule over your people with tenderness, with care, with sacrifice, with love. And we pray that you would guide us as a church to follow you and your direction as you've laid out in the uh, in the scriptures, um, that our leaders would reflect Christ, that our congregation would reflect Christ to your glory. Amen.